0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Heart of Sports with Jason Springer and Jeff Cohen, powered by ELEC A25. We are thrilled to join you on WWDB 860 AM and 97.5 HD 2, part of the Beasley Media Group, ready to help you move into the weekend talking about all the news in the world of sports. As the calendar turns to September and we we get to fall baseball, we're going to do a little bit of a catcher show today. Uh, First, we're going to go to an interview that we did this week with Ryan LaVarnway, former Major League Baseball catcher, Olympian. We'll go to him in a minute and then we'll revisit our interview with Eric Kratz, who is the subject of a new book after his long career and then talk a little more about it after that. So let's go to that first interview now. Let's bring on MLB catcher, Olympian, played in the World Baseball Classic, now author Ryan LaVarway joins the show. Uh, You played on eight big league teams, wore the uniform of 18 other clubs, but here you are with a new book out. Talk to us about how it feels to add this new title.
1: Oh man, Jeff, Jason, thanks for having me, guys. Uh, The book just came out. It just launched yesterday. I'm really excited about it. Uh, I can't wait for people to get it. And I I hope it means something to people as much as it means to me. What was your
2: What was your motivation for doing
1: it? I'll tell you what, I did not set out to write a kid's book. Um, I was sharing my message to adult audiences, and the message is, you know, I did what I loved. I, I played baseball, I, I followed my dreams, and I ended up finding a community. I ended up finding somewhere where I felt like I belonged. And I'm giving this talk to, to adult audiences and sharing the confidence that comes with uh, knowing wh- who you are and knowing where you belong. And I think that's such a universal message. I was mentioning to my rabbi and he said, this needs to be a kid's book. This needs to be something that's shared with young people at an early impressionable age when, you know, the concept of of belonging and faith is still so new, but they have this example of of what you've been through and hopefully it, it helps a lot of people.
0: So let's take a step back as to how you got to this book. 2016 season was a frustrating one, not your, your happiest season. 2017 you get chosen for Team Israel after this season and you find, you know, you're on what they call the Jamaican bobsled team of baseball. You end up finishing sixth and you said you found the fun in baseball again. Talk to us about yeah. that experience and how that changed your outlook on on the game itself.
1: Yeah, so you're absolutely right. 2016 was the one of the worst years of my life. It was the worst year of my baseball career. I was coming off five years in a row with major league service time. I ended up being outright released for the first time, traded, sent down to double A again, and I really just wasn't fell out of love with with baseball in general Uh, and then this wbc team turned it all around there was no worrying about getting called up there was no worry about a free agent that might sign and get me sent back to the minors no worried about not worried about getting released or or, you know status on the team we played we were underdogs and the only thing that mattered was winning we're surrounded by 26 guys or 28 guys however big the roster was it didn't matter who had 10 years service time if you were jason marquis it didn't matter if you were a flash in the pan like Ike Davis. Uh, it didn't matter if you were Sam Fold on the, your way to being a, a GM of a baseball team in three years or, or if you were me who you know felt like I had been overlooked a little bit and, and up and down or guys with no service time whatsoever. We were pulling the same rope in the same direction with the same goal and all that mattered was winning. And baseball was so pure and it was so fun. Uh, and we got to spend all that time together in korea in japan proving people wrong and proving ourselves right and it was just so much fun that i i can't speak highly enough about that wbc experience
2: you know people always talk in baseball about the pinnacle of baseball being making it to the major leagues but over the last few years the olympics and the world baseball classic have become more and more important what is it like to represent a country uh in both the olympics to say I mean, we introduced you in part as an Olympian. Yeah. What's it like to to be an Olympian and then also participate in the World Baseball Classic representing a country?
1: Uh, it's pretty cool. It's it's not something I ever thought I'd get to do because throughout the entirety of my career, baseball wasn't even in the Olympics for all those years. So it was a dream I never dreamt of, right? And um, the thing about representing Israel versus representing USA, which I was recruited for the USA team, and decided to play for Israel instead. You're not necessarily the. You're definitely not the favorite, and you're you're maybe not even playing to win. But what you're doing is you're you're playing to represent not only a country, but a culture and a people and a bloodline. And it's it's something that's become so important to me as as my a member of of that community is um something something one of the other Israeli Olympians said to me at the Olympics will always stick with me. It says, uh, in Israel, we're always proud when we punch above our weight, because people will always underestimate us, uh, and we're always going to prove them wrong.
0: You know, what's it like for you? Baseball is not, for, for all the sports that Israel does participate in, baseball hasn't been huge there. I mean, you guys were building the first baseball fields as you were playing on these teams in the, in the WBC, for you to... To give these kids somebody to look up to that that they can be like you. What what's that mean for you?
1: Yeah, it, it's pretty cool. That struck me for the first time, um, Jason. That that struck me for the first time when we were playing in Brooklyn for the qualifiers, and a yeshiva, uh, which is a Jewish day school, was in the stands. Maybe two of them, and I, I realized that these players have ne- or these kids have never had a Jewish team to root for. Right. When I was growing up in L.A., we had Sean Green on the Dodgers. and He was the only Jewish player on the team. And I know that. And um, what that meant to me was that his baseball card said he was six foot four, 225 pounds. And I always wanted to be just like him. So my baseball card to this day says six, four, 225 pounds, even though neither of those numbers is, is correct. And. And I got to meet Sean Green, I was inducted uh, into the Southern California Jewish Sports Hall of Fame. Very specific, very niche (laughs) Hall of Fame. Um, And Sean's a member and I got to to communicate with him through this uh, event and it was really cool for me. And I told him that story of how my baseball card has his height and weight numbers on it. And the thing he said to me was, those numbers aren't right for me either. (laughs)
2: so so who did he model his baseball card after
0: you don't even know who you went. i didn't didn't ask that
1: follow-up question i just thought it was cool that's awesome
2: you know ryan in in addition to to being on an underdog team and playing for team israel instead of the united states take a step back you actually played for the ivy league and playing for yale um unfortunately you're not the first yale product that we've actually had on the show we had ron darling on at one point well what was it like playing in the Ivy League? And as, as a member of an Ivy League team, did you think that you were going to be drafted in, into the MLB?
1: Uh, so I, I didn't do any research on how many big leaguers Yale had produced before I got there. My goal was always to play in the major leagues, and Yale as an education was my backup plan. Um, what I know now as a 36-year-old retired baseball player that does motivational speaking what i know now is that there had never been another hitter from yale to make the big leagues what i know now is that yale baseball has produced more u.s presidents than major league baseball players um but nobody told me that at the time so my my mindset going into it was if i'm good enough they will find me and that was my goal when i played for the 270th ranked d1 team my goal was be good enough so that they, they can't miss me.
0: So, okay, you're, you're at Yale. And, you know, you're somebody who you talk about how you're a motivating speaker now. Motivation comes from perseverance. Uh, 26 times I saw is how many times you were demoted, sent down, traded, or released. And coming up, you, you had these questions of why not me and, and why not more? Talk about the combination of your own drive to be more than people thought you could be and that perseverance you had to develop as you called it the sixth tool for players
1: yeah no i think that people are either motivated by the carrot or the stick right and for me it was always the carrot you know i i was driving towards something i wasn't i wasn't afraid of what was coming behind me i had a goal i wanted to play in the major leagues i wanted to get the most out of myself that i could um and and i think there's value and um reward within the effort within the working hard um i had my retirement party this weekend and my wife got me this beautiful legacy gift uh, of this huge it's it's wonderful it's a book you open it up it has some video highlights uh, on the inside cover and then it has a lot of the articles that have been written about me over the years and it starts in high school it continues to, through college in the minor leagues um and as I'm reading through these articles from 20 years ago, it's it's interesting to see what 17 year old Ryan said in the media. Um, but the theme that I kept seeing come up was how every coach I ever had said I was the hardest worker they ever they ever coached, and them praising my effort and my and my work ethic means just as much to me as when they they noticed how unlikely it was that I would have the success that I did.
2: What's it like growing up as a catcher? We, we had Tim Brown, who wrote, just wrote a book on backup catchers. We had Eric Kratz on here a little while ago, too. Being a catcher involves, it's just a different mentality. Yeah. How did you know that this is what you wanted to do? I mean, they talk about the catcher as the tools of ignorance. And there, there's all these phrases, and people just think about catchers in a different way than any other position.
1: Yeah, it's, it's ironic that it's the tools of ignorance when you need to be the smartest player on the field um i i started catching when i was seven years old mostly because i was the only player on the team that wasn't afraid to do it Uh, but i continued because i i loved being involved in every single play and i think i think you know within the within the jason you mentioned um you know the why not me the why not more mantras that that echo throughout my career i think there's there's three levels of leadership that come with it i think first you need to lead yourself and then you, you learn, once you can lead yourself, then you need to learn how to lead the team. And then I think the best teams have people that are, are really thinking about leading the culture, not just the players. And the catcher has the chance to do all three of those things. You know, you, you lead yourself, you do the right things, you build good habits, uh, you're ready to perform when the time comes. Uh, you lead your teammates, you, you direct traffic on the field, you call pitches, you guide the pitchers through the game. And then you you lead the culture um, where it's the energy in the dugout. It's the mindset. It's the conversations, the way that you talk to each other, the way that you encourage each other. And and as a catcher, you have the unique opportunity to do all of those things every single day. You know, you see
2: so many catchers who end up managing in the big leagues and throughout organizations, probably for the reasons that you just said. Is that something that you could see yourself doing someday?
0: Peter Kurz has already said that he would welcome you Uh, as a coach, when your days are over for team Israel, I saw,
1: I saw, you saw the article that came out this morning. Um, (laughs) Peter Kurz is is amazing. I, I think I would love managing actually. Um, right now I have a one-year-old daughter and my priority is not being gone for eight months that it takes to live through the baseball world, but it's definitely in the back of my mind as a possibility. And I think I, I would really love it.
0: You know, Jeff and I used to do a minor league show years ago, and we love the stories of, of what you guys overcome to get there, to really chase your dream. Like People don't realize how much you have to go through when you're a minor league ball player. Anything mm. that sticks out, some of those long bus rides, some of the, the fun back-to-backs that kind of stick out on the journey that kind of help shape you into the player you were?
1: Oh, I, I mean, it's different now. They've changed the schedule where minor leagues have every Monday off. Uh, but there was points where we had 28 games in 26 days. where We had two days off uh, in two months. Um, I remember in the single-A playoffs at one point, we had a 14-hour bus ride to play one game and then turn around and come right back. And the bus got pulled over at 8 in the morning um, when we were 30 minutes from where we were going. So uh, those those memories now, looking back, are, are fond memories. But at the time, it was not so fun.
2: What was the the... Lesson that you learn from your days in the minor leagues.
1: I think it goes back to you know leading yourself. It's it's easy to have excuses. It's easy to uh, look at the problems, right? When you're in the minor leagues and and you know before they changed the salary to a living wage, you're living on five dollar footlongs or the the team provided meal that was uh, white bread and fluff was the pregame meal, right? And you're on a bus until four in the morning and you're, you're moving and you don't know what city you're in or what hotel floor you're even on. Um, but if you can keep the most important thing, the most important thing, and you focus on your results and, and getting better every single day, then you're going to make it to the big leagues or you're going to get the most out of yourself and get to the level you're supposed to be at. But I've seen so many of my, play- of my teammates and, and former players that focus on like, what am I going to do in the offseason to make money? What am I gonna? What am I gonna do? Uh, my family's giving me pressure here, or my girlfriend is? Is this? And, and ultimately, those questions can be answered when the time comes. But when it's between the lines at seven o'clock, you got to post, and, and you got to keep the thing that matters the most as the most important thing.
0: You know, you mentioned going back and reading those stories of your hard work growing up, and and then that being cited by other coaches, your own comments. You mentioned leading now you've been named team israel's first captain let's let's take it back to where you go with the book and 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 being there about the book you've said that if i had to boil it down the message is doing what you love and sign finding somewhere you can feel loved just talk about that message that you want to come through from not only the book but your own journey to get here to be this author now
1: yeah Listen, the the book is about my story playing for team Israel, so there's there's a Jewish theme to it, but I think the message is universal. Right? Everyone wants to feel seen and loved and understood and feel like they belong. And I think most people have a passion. They have something that they love to do. And when you can combine those two things, it doesn't matter what your community is. It doesn't matter what group of people you feel the most loved with. You need to find those people and if You can, the amount of confidence, the amount of self-assuredness that will come with that will make every aspect of your life so much better.
2: You know, you talk about the idea of being, feeling loved. We in Philadelphia have a situation now where if you, I don't know if you paid attention, but Trey Turner, Trey Turner has gone through that situation here where he was getting booed when he was pressing hard and the fans, for whatever reason, decided, you know what, we're going to start cheering him. And since that time, you not only see him performing better, you actually see his attitude change. He looks like a kid playing a fun game again. What is it like for an athlete to go through the experiences of boos and cheers and, and how does that affect him? Because we always hear athletes just tune it out. And it, I, I don't, I never buy that because you're human beings. What is, it, what is it like and what has been your experience when it comes to those uh,
1: No, I think you're absolutely right. And, and I, before I even get to answering your, your question, Jeff, I want to I mention that I applaud the Philadelphia fans for changing their tune and helping that player. Because Trey Turner is an amazing, talented, superhuman of a player. And they recognize that he needed that. And he's rewarding them with his plays. I've, I've been to games in Chicago. I've played in – or not Chicago, in Philly. I've been in Philly. I've played in Philly. And but your fans are tough. They're not messing around. Some of the toughest fans in the world. Um, but yeah, when I was with the Red Sox and we played in New York and they booed, it felt good, right? Because those are the fans that are supposed to boo us. And I appreciate that they boo us. And then when we did something great, and there was I remember there's one specific play. We, we made a great play, a relay from the outfield. I tagged the guy out of the plate. There's probably a collision. And then the sound of silence of 50,000 people shocked into silence that was powerful but when you're getting booed by the people that you would hope love you or by fans that really maybe shouldn't hate you that wears on you like it's easy to say i tune it out but it's not real
0: you know you're, you're somebody who's seen a lot of changes through your time in baseball and got the new rules speeding up the pace of play questions about you know robo balls and strikes What's your thoughts on on how the game has changed this year and what you see? You know, you talked about how the minors are different. The majors are now different in terms of how the game is played at this point.
1: Yeah, so I, I think the pitch clock is good for baseball. I, I think the pitch calm helps with the communication. You have pitchers that want to call games. We could have used it with Clay Buchholz back in the day because he would shake 15 times every single pitch, and it was a five-hour game. It was ridiculous. <laughs> uh, no, I think most of the changes are good. I, th- I I think the commissioner has the best of the sport in mind when he implements these new rules. Uh, I think there's times when umpires or rule makers need to allow for a little bit of common sense. Right, the last thing you want is an inning to end with men on base uh, because of a pitch clock violation, or late in the game as as it starts to get intense. You don't want to see the pitch clock violation affect the entire game. Uh, but in in general, as long as common sense can be used i think the rules are good for baseball now,
2: now i think now we know one of the pitchers you, you didn't enjoy catching so now i'm gonna i'm gonna ask you of all the people that you've caught what is the the best experience you ever remember having in the major leagues catching someone
1: uh, well i don't want to i don't want to bash clay i actually really enjoyed catching clay minus the shaking every pitch <laughs> Clay, Clay Buckholt and Bobby Jenks are my two go-to answers for um, who were the most talented pitchers that you ever faced. Because those two men could make the ball move any which direction at will, and it was really impressive. Um, so those two guys, as far as the, the most enjoyable, um, I, I got to be a part of a couple milestones for John Lester in Boston. And that was, that was pretty cool. The book
0: is Baseball and Belonging, uh, Get It Today, Nonfiction for Kids, Chronicles Life, Athletic Career, and How Israel's Burgeoning Baseball Program Helped You Find Your Judaism and Helps Others Belong. Uh, Ryan, thanks so much for the time. We, we look forward to your continued success and hope to get to talk to you again.
1: Thank you, Jeff, Jason. This was awesome. Anytime you guys want me back, I'd be happy to come back and join you guys. Operating
2: engineers are the men and women that move mountains and the Engineers Labor Employer Cooperative, ELEC, puts them to work. They create opportunities for the men, women, and union signatory contractors of Local 825, repaving our roads, keeping our homes bright and warm, and even building our favorite team stadium. We understand infrastructure. That's
0: why ELEC and Local 825 are ready to get to work. Let's bring on former Phillies catcher, host of foul territory, and now author of the new book "Tau of the Backup Catcher: Playing Baseball for the Love of, game, of the Game." Eric Kratz, uh, Eric. After 14 different organizations over 19 years, all the you know over 100 transactions, do you ever think you'd be introduced as author?
3: Not an author. So that's, that's the first thing everybody introduces me as, and I'm not an author. I helped tell the story. A Tim author. So people are like, wow, you're an author just today on our show that we just finished. We had Ross Stripling on. And Ross Stripling's like, wow, that's so cool. I didn't know. You. Or you wrote a book or anything like that. I go, whoa, whoa. I did not, my name is on the front of the cover, but it does not say authors. It says written by Tim Brown and Eric Kratz. Should have said was there.
2: Well, look, we've we've had Tim, we had Tim on to talk about this book and to talk about uh, his his other penmanship and <laughs> it, the stories that that you tell. Um, And that is you're saying that he puts into words. It's fascinating to talk about the catcher, because from an outside perspective, as somebody who didn't play the position, you sit there and you think about the backup catcher and you hear people I'll give you an example of the Phillies now. Last year, people didn't want to trade Logan O'Hoppe because he was this young up-and-coming catcher. But it seems, and, and I got a lot of this through your book, how important it is to have a veteran catcher, somebody like Garrett Stubbs, and how important they are to the locker room and the team. How important is that for, for people that are listening? How important is it to have a veteran as a backup catcher as opposed to to somebody young coming up from the minor? It is so so important.
3: One one especially when you're talking about just especially Garrett Stubbs, the guy had been with a World Series team just the year before. And you don't sit there and say, "Wow, Garrett Stubbs, he's old and he's not he's not old. You know, he doesn't even really have a ton of experience in the in the sense of like 6 plus years in the big leagues, but he has experiences of where the team wanted to go to. And if you sit there and you go, "Well, he had nothing, he did nothing to get the team there," then you clearly have not read the book yet because that's the kind of thing that backup catchers bring. And it's one of those things that it's actually the one position that analytics, while they try to dabble into it, they try to say, well, we want a backup catcher who, who receives the ball really well. Like he has to, well, yeah, obviously like every position you want, nobody's going to be like, well, we want a backup infielder who hits, but we don't really care how he feels. No, like there's, there's prerequisites for positions But if you're a jerk, if you're a team cancer and you're a backup catcher, you're gone. You're gone. They'll find another one. Not that, not that there's all great ones, but you can't sit there and go, man, I I gotta be playing more. But you have to think in your mind, I'm the best catcher we got on this team without ever letting anybody know about it.
2: And we had Garrett on earlier this year and and after having him on and then reading your book, it's like the light bulb goes off. Like all of a sudden you see, cause like, He's the guy, and, and the backup catcher is often the guy that nobody thinks about. He's the DJ. And and and, and yet he seems to be part of the glue that, that kept that team together, that kept it light when it was necessary, that kept the pitchers on task, that was ready if anything happens to one of the most important pieces on the team in JT Muto. The The most important team, person on the team, in my opinion, the most important team is your
3: starting catcher. You name me a team that has a bad starting catcher, and I'll show you a team that does not make the World Series. You cannot have a bad starting catcher and make the World Series. You might make the playoffs. You might – you have to have – that position is so important. And if that position is so important, and JT Romuto plays more consistently and more games than any starting catcher since Salvador Perez has had kind of some down years of not playing as much JT's out there more than any starting catcher. And yet he's still only out there 135 games. If that position is so important. And I think everybody agrees that it is that important. You need to have a backup catcher that can step in and play on the days that JT can't play. And then you start talking about, I hate using like, you know, different words, like clubhouse guy and glue and, but they're, they're so applicable for the backup catcher because I think too many times it's like, it's like when somebody passes away and everyone's like, oh, he was such a great guy. You know, how many times have people ever passed away and they say, man, that guy's a turd? No, <laughs> nobody says that. Just like if a guy is helping a team like Garrett Stubbs, he is a great guy. And I don't want to push that out there too much, but I know Garrett. I know this guy is exactly what you need. But I also know, Garrett, that when I text him after he hits a dinger against a lefty in New York and he puts the boys up by a run, like he wants to be a starting catcher. But he knows I get to go and I get to hang out and I get to cheer the boys on, maybe maybe mix a little music on the DJ, maybe a little, you know, call the guys out when you need it. It is, it is such a role, and I think Tim did an incredible job of – hitting on on all the different roles and different stories in the book.
0: It's funny. For as much as I've grown up watching baseball, I always looked at the, ca- the backup catcher as the guy that's there when the starter doesn't play. This book comes through how important the 21 hours that you aren't playing baseball in a 24-hour day are for the backup catcher. And, you know, you talk about how they get va- more valuable with age. It just seems to be because of all the preparation. Can you talk about that from the meetings you attend to how you deal with people emotionally, those 21 hours when you're not on the field. What is that for a backup catcher?
3: That You actually just brought up the title of my next book that I'm going to write, The Emotions of a Starting Pitcher. It's going to be a whole book about starting pitchers and the emotions you have to deal with. No, it, it, it's something that you, and I'm seeing it more now as a as a retired player that I was completely focused and locked in to my job as a backup catcher or, you know, when I was in Milwaukee as a starting catcher, because there's no, the blurred line is only the fact that I'm either playing for those three hours or I'm sitting and watching and wondering from the fifth inning on what inning I'm coming in, pinch hit, you know, defensive replacement, whatever it is. And so the preparation and everything, you sit there, you know, guys are like, oh, this guy, he worked so hard. He's in the, to me, working hard and working on your nutrition, getting enough sleep, being physically ready is like where you start your day. That's not like, wow, you know, I'm, I'm so much better or this guy's so much better because he works so hard in the weight room and all. Like that's where you start your day because as a backup catcher, then you go, okay, if I'm not healthy, and they call on me, now the starting catcher is going to have to play through an injury because the backup guy is not ready. Or I'm in AAA, which you know most of my career I spent in AAA getting called up. If I'm not healthy down there, okay, they're going to go to the next guy. They're not just sitting there like, we really need Kratz's like 209 batting average on our team. No, they're just going to go to the next guy. And so all that stuff is like, to me, that's where you start your day. And then you talk about like preparing for the game and you're scouting reports. I sat there when I was with the Phillies, 2011 to 13, we had Roy Holiday, Cole Hamels, Cliff Lee in the bullpen, Papelbon, we had Joe Blanton, we had Vance Worley. We had, you know, all these names of pitchers and I had to deal with all of them. And you say, well, you don't have to deal with them. Like those guys are so easy. Yes, they're very easy because they're very, very good pitchers. And some days they were good, some days they were not good. but they all were different personalities in the sense that Roy Halliday and I spent and chase. We would spend There's five computers in the in the um, video room and we would sit there and those guys are mutes. They don't say a word. I chat, chat all the time. but when I'm in there, I'm just whoop, quiet. And we're on the computer doing our scatter reports, all completely different scan reports, but all for the same goal of like, okay, well, what, what do I need to learn from this? What do I need to, so I see, so I see Doc working super hard, okay, getting ready. Then my day is, so I know my scatter report has to be spot on to what he's looking for. He says what he wants and then I gotta, I gotta work with that. Then Cliff Lee, the only time we ever did a scouting report with Cliff Lee, he goes, I go, why don't you ever do scouting reports? He goes, you know what? I think I think you guys do enough. I've seen how much work you do. I trust what you got. And so he trusted himself. But one time, his one scouting report, he goes, I'm never going to throw a fastball away to Giancarlo Stanton. And I'm thinking, okay, you know, I don't want to either. I want to throw fastballs in, your cutter, Cliff's cutter in, maybe drop, drop a few breaking balls in there. And and I go, well, why? And he goes, because if I throw a fastball out over the plate and he hits it, I might not live. If I throw one in and he hits it, it's just a homer. I'm still going to be alive. <laughs> and, then, and then you go with a guy like Cole Hamels, who you come into the training room and you're like, hey, you want to do a scouting report? You know, you want to go over to these guys? He's like, no, nah, we're playing the Marlins. He's like, you know, we got them. You know, we, 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 we know what we want to do. And then as you're walking out, he goes, uh, Hey, you know, I want to just make sure that we're, you know, we're not going to throw Zuna anything over the plate. If, you know, there's a base open and uh, well, don't forget about Justin Ruggiano. He doesn't like change it. And by the time, by the next 10 minutes, he's gone through their entire lineup, but Hey, you never tell Cole, he doesn't want to do a scattering report. Cause it's like kind of this, like, oh, I don't, so it's all crazy different personalities.
2: You know, you talk a lot in the book about being a, basically being a therapist for these guys, H- how in the world do you, they are different personalities. I mean, we've all gotten to know at a, in a, a tiny level how different those personalities are from Cliff Lee to Roy Halliday to Vance Worley to, to Cole Hamels to all of those guys are very, very different people. H- how do you as a catcher, do you have to manage each one separately Or or do they respect you enough to say, "Okay, you're the catcher. I'm going to make sure that I listen to you because you're the one who did the work.
3: I'd love to say they respect me, Um, but I think there's some respect there. I I think I saw it grow the more I played, but I also felt like the more I played, the less respect I wanted. Like, I don't want you to respect me. I want to get this right. And so something that if I'm wrong, I want you to shake me off. Like I I can't stand when there's like the old catcher who has a rookie on the mound. He's like, yeah, you can't shake me off. Like, no, I want you to be comfortable. So that, that like, that psyche, that therapist mode where you're sitting there going, yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do whatever it takes for this guy is so true. Like you have to be able to, coddle the guys that need to be coddled you need to be, be able to throttle the guys that need to be throttled and you need to just stay out of the way of the guys that have got it going on and it's the best i like i like the analogy you said it's like a dj like you sit you sit there and you're like man this is nice music and then you look at the dj you never go where's the dj at oh yeah i like his music no you hear it first and that's kind of how a catcher is they're the best backup catchers and even sometimes, you know, your average hitting catchers, you never really see them until their batting average goes below 200. Then you're like, wait a minute, is he a good catch? Like the best catchers stay out of the way. Martin Maldonado. Nobody would ever hear of Martin Maldonado if he wasn't hitting 160 in the Astros every week or every game that they only score one run, didn't have to didn't have to say okay, well, the reason Maldonado's still in there is because of what he does for the pitching staff. And and he finally wins a World Series. Now, all of a sudden, everyone's like, oh, okay, well, I understand what he does. But what he does, he's been doing for the last 12 years behind the dish.
2: So I got a a quick question for you. You mentioned the shaking off of of a catcher. First of all, is that frustrating for a catcher at, at times? And second, how do you deal with that now? We now have a pitch clock. The pitchers don't have the have option pitch to shake off, you know. Incessantly, they got a certain amount of time. Is the, do the catcher sit there and kind of smile and go, "Yeah, now they have to do what I said." <laughs>
3: uh, I I would I I don't know I, I think it's I think that's a personal thing. I think some guys, like I said, I don't need him to do like I don't need I am so good at being right. I don't need you to tell me that I'm right by just calling you know just doing whatever pitch. Like you like throw the pitch that you are most confident in, and so for for the most of the game, I'm going to sit there and give you suggestions. And if you shake off, we'll talk about it. We'll talk about it afterwards. I'm not going to go out to the mound and be like, "Are you kidding me right now? You called this pitch." Anybody that questions pitch calling, unless you're talking to the pitcher and catcher, is to me is towing a fine line because a pitcher could call whatever pitch he wants. If he has a hundred percent conviction in it, I am all on board with that. We would talk about it, but you don't have time to talk about it with the pitch with the pitch clock. So you hit your little button and you go fastball and he says, no, I'm going to go to the next one. You know, pitch comm is only just fingers. That's all it is. You know, it's just glorified electric fingers.
0: So, you know, along the line of catchers as therapists and the mental side of the game, you know, last year we had Nick Castellanos come here and struggle for a lot of the year. This year, Trey Turner. And so the conversation is, do you give him a day off? He didn't want it the other night, played, struggled, got it, got a day off the next night. How do you handle the mental side of the game with the slumping players? How would you handle that as a backup catcher?
3: You handle it the same way you handle a pitcher. Like, for instance, you talk about Trey Turner, like he gave himself a day off by getting kicked out of the game after he had already made the errors. Like you, you have to get to know these guys. And this is one of the things I really take pride in is not forgetting a teammate, not the for that, that I haven't forget gotten them. But when you bring them up, Oh yeah, I remember, I think we played together in uh, this in double a or whatever. You have to learn these guys. And as a backup catcher, while it may not be your role every time you don't just go to a team and be like, okay, guys, I'll take the guy who's struggling, you know, and I'll I'll take him under my wing. No, I don't have the answers. They're all people. Trey Turner is a person. Trey Turner is a competitor. Trey Turner is a father, a husband, and all those things. If you get to know the person, you don't necessarily have to help them through a slump. You don't necessarily have to be a hitting coach for them. Most people just need life coaches. They need that like person that they can talk to, not talk to, or be talked at. It, it, it just really all depends. But obviously, I can delve into the fact that Trey Turner's not hitting fastballs and not hitting curveballs this year like he did. And somehow he's hitting sliders and cutters way more than he did other years. All that's done in, you know, a couple of click, click, clicks of my computer. And I can see that. But how do you help a guy if you're on his team? Maybe you talk to other people they used to play with. Like, what kind of guy was he when he was in L.A.? What kind of guy was he when he was in in Washington? Like I played with um, Jonathan Scope. Jonathan Scope got traded in 2018 to the Brewers. And I think, you know, he's kind of had like a, kind of had a middling role with us because we had Travis Shaw and Mike Moustakis that would play second and third. And then we would bring in Scopey for when we faced lefties. And I think he started like one for 15 and his locker was right next to mine and he was bummed like bummed, like he switched his number. (laughs) Like he was, he was going through it. And, you know, for a little bit, I talked about the fact that, look, man, I know about not playing and you're just not not playing that much. It's not that you're not a good player. It's just, you're not playing much. And then, you know, he still kind of struggled a little bit and he was, he was grinding. And so I took a printout. I got our computer, our from our computer um, room I hooked it up to the printer and I printed out as many papers of his stats. So basically your stats take about this much space. And I just repeated it through like thousands of times. And I printed it out and I put it up all over his locker, all his career stats, all his seasons, everything. And I was just like, now you can look at who you, who you are. It's not who you were It's who you are. And you'll go ahead. You'll be fine. You know, it's just a, a visual learning tool. Did it help? I don't know if it helped. He laughed, so maybe that's all he needed.
2: You know, but you know, the more I hear from from your position, and we've talked to a lot of catchers, especially catchers in the minor leagues, is you all seem to be doing that for everybody else. Who's doing that for you? I mean, because it, it's a tough job that you talked to yourself about going up and down from the miners, You were in a lot of organizations. We talked to, I don't know if you know Nick Rickles, we talked to him about, you know, he, he had a family and, and how long can you do this? You're not making the kind of money that the stars are making and you are moving around and moving your family. How do you, how do you deal with the day-to-day of, of all of that? Everything that is in your life while you're sitting there being part of the glue of the team and doing that for other people?
3: I think you have to be confident in yourself I think you have to have a support network at home that helps you with that kind of stuff. I think, you know, for me, my faith was a huge part of it that I was able to understand that my worth was not in how I did at the field, but my worth was in how I interacted with people, how I had a connection with people on my team. And I think there is, I hope that's the part that people glean from the book is yeah there's some cool baseball stories there's you know i didn't really know this much about the backup catcher but i hope people can take from it everybody can do this everybody can be a backup catcher not everybody wants to be a backup catcher everybody wants to be the starter in their life but you know what if you want to be the manager of the store you work for and you're only the assistant manager be the best freaking assistant manager you can be Maybe you'll never be the manager, but you know what? You can affect people's lives, whether it's the people you work with, whether it's your boyfriend or girlfriend or your spouse at home or your kids. And I hope that's what people can take from the book is that, yeah, that can be draining that, but you're not constantly just coming in, taking people's burdens on. You're trying to create it. If it's your job as a backup catcher to create a clubhouse culture, you're creating that culture just by the way you live. You don't live by taking on other people's burdens. You live by focusing on the positives and loving each person that's in there, not just the starters. Cause I play with some backup catchers, not played with them, played against them. Cause I'm the backup. I couldn't play with another backup. That would be really weird. Nobody would know what to do for 80, 80 games of the season but I've played with, I've played against guys that their role, like they felt like their role as the backup was to like go up to Roy Halliday and be buddies with them. And Oh, I'm buddies with Cole Hamels. And I'm, you know, I'm going to be Cole Hamels, personal catcher. No, that's the starting catcher. The starting catcher is going to catch the superstars. You're going out there to give us the most we can out of Vance Worley, out of Kyle Kendrick, out of, you know, Aaron Nola, when he first gets called up to the big leagues out of Josh Lynn Bloom, when he first gets called up to the big leagues, you know, you start, I can name tons of Phillies names that that's your role. And that role, it could be, it could wear on you, but it, it's so re- so much more rewarding than trying to figure out how to be a really good baseball player.
0: I found it interesting that you sort of started the book at the end of your career with the retirement and reflecting on the lessons from your dad but at the same time, you were explaining things to your children. Um, you, you had a quote there: after playing the game on your own terms, you're able you, on its terms, you're able to leave on your own terms. What did it mean to be able to, after that crazy journey you had, all the transactions, to be able to go out with your family there and to explain to your kids what it all meant?
3: So awesome! I mean, I I can't like. We, we were going to we kind of kind of shift the book in a little bit of a direction where it was going to kind of be the main part of the book would have been the Milwaukee season. But how the – because we started in 19, um, the, how the whole COVID season ended and how there's still things from that season that I sit here and go, like it never – like I, I could have never written this up to, to end like this. My plan was, as this, as my career went on, As I got towards the end, I was thinking, okay, 2020 is the Olympics. Like I'm going to play in the Olympics. I'm going to win the Olympic gold medal. And I'm not going to come back to my AAA team. I'm going to take a vacation in Hawaii to the point where I was on the Olympic qualifying team. And we were about to be before COVID hit. We were about to buy our tickets from Japan to Hawaii. My whole family was going to be there in the Olympics and We were gonna take a two week vacation, never been to Hawaii, would like to go. Sounds like a really nice place. And we were gonna spend time there during the baseball season, which you never get to take a vacation during the baseball season. And it was gonna be a super like, wow, what a, how awesome of a way to end your career. Well, you know what ended up happening? We got kicked out of spring training because of COVID. I drove 17 hours straight from Tampa to my house in Pennsylvania, and I got locked in our house for six weeks during COVID, whatever, you know, the nonsense was that we had. And then I played a season kind of that would, you know, the opening day, I think was actually just yesterday in 2020. So, you know, it was a crazy season. I would have never drawn that up, but I would have never drawn up over a hundred transactions either. So to be able to come to the end of my career and, Console my sons, my daughter was super excited that I was quitting. Not retiring, quitting, because she knew I was getting a puppy. Um, <laughs> but my sons were crying in the backseat of the bus, driving back to the resort, okay? Listen, the resort that we were staying on in Carlsbad, outside of San Diego, that the team bought us a suite for my wife, and me, and my daughter, and my sons got their own room in this resort that had all expenses paid. Like the whole resort was just for us. And at the time, the Rays, and like we got to experience it together. Had I had I gone to the World Series with the Yankees in 2020, and you know I'd gone, to, I'd done the Olympics, and then caught up in September if I came back. Like families can't fly on the team plane with the Yankees, other teams they do, but not with the Yankees, like I wouldn't have had that experience. We would have ended whether we were or not, it would have still been a sad moment for my kids, not a sad moment for me, not a sad moment for my wife or my daughter. So it's something that was to be able to go out on my own terms when the, when my whole career starting from, my first spring training on when I saw the first kid I ever saw get released get fired and I was like holy cow that can happen in the back of my mind I'm like oh man I could be released I got released a ton I never you know I, I ended up quitting on my own but it's it's so such an amazing blessing to be able to go out on my own terms
2: and, and now you've gone out on your own terms and you've had the opportunity to coach your own kids. And, and so what is it, first, what is that experience like? And, and why is it that catchers seem to be the ones that end up as managers?
3: Probably because we still need to get service time in the big leagues because we weren't athletic enough <laughs> to get, no, I mean, the, the easy, the easy, the easy answer to that is you see everything. And we've talked about it for this whole episode you also communicate with so many people. You communicate with pitchers. You communicate with position players. Position players and pitchers, sometimes they may, never, they may never do anything together. And that's okay. It's not a dysfunctional clubhouse. Everybody's just so locked in on what they need to do and who they're around. You surround yourself with like-minded people, and position players don't necessarily have that much in common with pitchers. They have days off. They can go pitch it. They can go golfing. Position players like, I got to get to bed. I got to do this because I'm back out there. And then there's Americans and Latinos. So you got to speak Spanish. No, you don't have to, but it helps. I mean, it helps. It helps get people into the team and feel like they're all part of the team if you're able to communicate with those guys. So then you become a manager and you know how to deal with people. Managing is really not X's and O's X's and O's. Like you can't, you can't make mistakes with that kind of stuff. Like that just doesn't, that doesn't have, you're not even going to be close to a manager. It's about how you deal with people, but coaching now. So I coached two years for my, for the middle school. And we won one game in two seasons. And so I got promoted to the high school team. So that's how it works in, in, in pro baseball, if you do bad, you get demoted. In high school and middle school coaching, you get promoted. So the one win, and we actually, we we came within one win of, of the state championship. Um, we had an awesome season this year at Doc Academy. And that, to be able to coach my sons, now my, my 14-year-old son is going to be a ninth grader, so I coached him in middle school last year or two years ago. And I coached my sophomore now going to be a junior and on the high school team this year. Um, so to be able to do that is incredible. It, It really is incredible. It's I've given up opportunities to coach in the big leagues. I've gotten multiple offers of coaching in the big leagues that were really easy to turn down, super honored to get offered but really easy to turn down at this point in my career. I mean, at this point in my life, because my kids are going to be out of school soon. Like my 14 year old son has four more years and then he's going to go, then he's going to go to college. My 10 year old daughter who won the Phillies home run derby two years ago down at citizens bank. And will probably win it again this year down at citizens bank. I get to go and be part of that kind of stuff. I get to go and be a dad and hopefully They remember me being around more than being able to take BP on the field, you know, with whatever team I'm coaching. Although some days they're like, I wish we could still be out on the field taking (laughs) BP. I was like, if you really, really need that guys, I will make a call and we'll see if we can get out there, but I'm pretty sure we can just drive five minutes down the road and we'll take BP there and we're good.
2: You know, Eric, it's so easy to see from the book, that this book is so much more than just about a position in a sport and, and and how you can apply this to your own life. But before I let you go, have you heard of immaculate grid yet? Come on.
3: I am. I'm trying to, I'm pining for a t-shirt.
2: The only t-shirt of immaculate grid is all me and all nine grid. So that's what I was going to say. So there's probably a lot of people, including me, who have used you in that immaculate grid and we all have to thank you. <laughs> you are welcome.
3: If you're if you're not a rarity score guy, like some people aren't rarity score people. I don't
2: care about the rarity
3: score, but but that's why you use me. The rarity score, you use me and I'm okay with being used. It's totally fine. Plenty of big league teams used me for whatever it was that they needed. But yes, there was I was just on today, I think. I got a I got a text somebody Somebody used me for the Astros and Phillies maybe or Astros and Yankees. Yeah, it's usually I'm usually like a point two or something. It, it's tremendous.
0: But you help make it all work for everybody, just like you did as the backup catcher. The book again ah. is the Tao of the backup catcher playing baseball for the love of the game. Eric Kratz, this was a blast. Thanks so much. Uh, best of luck with the book. And we hope we get you again sometime. You know, we get to talk to these guys like Ryan and Eric, and and you hear the passion they have for the game and how much fun they had playing it, and as they figure out life after their time on the field, they still watch, they're still into it. We, We talk about, you know, Trey Turner and the reaction with the fans, and then you get back to what's happened on the field this week. And the excitement, I mean, it's the middle of August, and you've got day baseball with 37,000 fans in the stadium going crazy. The, the Phillies are up to 74 and 59 on the season. They're 15 games over 500. That's the highest they've been all season. They were 10 and 8. Uh, they lost 10 8 in the final game of the homestand, but I mean, <laughs> you had Bryce Harper hitting his 300th home run to give them the lead 8 7 in the eighth. I know the bullpen blew it. We'll talk about that in a second, but Jeff and I talked a lot about. Harper's power is it going to come back? It's back. And the way that this team, you talk you go back to the fun in the interviews and you know Ryan talks about the fan base here and we asked him about standing ovation for Trey. The way that this team has related to this fan base, whether it's the fun that they have together, the overalls that they wear into the game, the putting contests they have that get out for their fantasy team. This team just seems to enjoy being around each other, and it's showing on the field. they ended up seventeen and ten in August, uh, thirteen and six at home for the month. They had fifty nine homers that's tied for the most in sports history, 13 more than they ever had in any month. We had talked about you know I, I've raised concerns with Jeff about leaving runners in scoring position and and the bullpen, sure, there are red flags that make you worry about any baseball team, but the offense hit 281 in August. They're 49-27 and 27 since June 3rd. That's behind only the Braves in their record and run differential. They're first in baseball in that span in ERA for all of our concern over the starting pitching, and what will that look like? Aaron Nolas looked a little bit better in his last two starts. So I want walkers up to 14 wins this season. I mean, (laughs) you know, if if I would have told you before the season, your free agent signing would have 14 wins at this point. I think most people would have taken it. I think the biggest concern right now is what's the bullpen going to do? seems like the lineup's coming around. You know, you wouldn't want to have to face this lineup. Trey Turner's hit 370 in his last 23 games since the standing ovation with 19 extra base hits. I think he's hitting like, a ton of games straight at home. The Phillies have scored 99 runs in their last 13 games. That's almost eight runs a night. And it's not just, you know, for a while it was the young guys that were carrying the team. Now it's, it's the guys that you expected to be producing. You've got Turner producing. You've got Schwarber producing at the top of the lineup. Yes, strikeouts. Jeff and I can talk about that all day long until we're blue in the face. But that works for this team the way they have this set up right now. They've gone from, you know, they're up to 13th in the league for home runs now. They were 21st just a month ago uh, at the start of August. They're on base percentages up till 10. I mean, all their numbers are looking better. So this is a team that as we get into September, seems to be rounding into form a little bit. Look, red October last year with the, the fans at the, The bank was amazing. All these players keep talking about is the atmosphere and the fans and how they support them and how they help them. And if you're going into the playoffs with that type of momentum and you're playing at home, it could be really exciting what we get to see. Still a lot of baseball to play, but fun to get the perspective from some catchers who have done it. Let's leave it there. Thanks so much for joining us this week. Make sure to join us next Friday night to help you start your weekend in style. Have a great one, and we'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye.